Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? We have Carly on with us. She's just a regular guest now. Her her knowledge is so broad, just such a broad spectrum of knowledge. But today, she's sharing something uh, both professionally and personally. Um, She um, has had some experience with eating disorders. And this is a podcast that we have bantied about doing for some time now, but we just kind of had to wait till she was ready um, and to put it together in a way um, that she felt like would be helpful um, in honoring um, all the things that we're going to talk about. And in fact, just before we got on here, I loved it because we prayed um, about doing this podcast mm-hmm. and, that, um, and that she would have discernment and I would have discernment. And I'm so glad we did that. Um, I'm so glad you're back. Carly, welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. Thank you, Chelsea. Yes, I do feel like a regular guest now. I feel really special. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm back yeah. again. I'm not going to take like one year long breaks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I didn't even give any of your background. I'm, I assume people know that by now. But um, one reason that Carly is just so valuable to have here and, and share with us is because she's got, you know, got her feet in both the allopathic and holistic mm-hmm. world. And she brings a lot of amazing knowledge um, from all sides. And, and so it's just so valuable and helpful. And she's just one smart cookie. So um, anyway, we're glad you're here. Why don't you kick us off um, in in any way that you want to move forward with this? Yeah, of course. Well, hello, everyone. It is so good to be here with you in spirit. I wish I was actually with you as you're listening to this so we could have a real conversation about it. So make sure you continue the conversation with us on social media or feel free to message us. Um, But yes, I am Carly. Um, As Chelsea said, I've gone over my background a lot. But yes, I am a nurse, so I have my my foot in conventional medicine. I will graduate as a nurse practitioner um, with my master's in nursing in May of next year, May 2022. So I will be licensed, prescriber, be able to order labs, all that stuff. Um, And at the same time, I'm also a nutritional therapist, just like Chelsea. We went through the same program there, and I've gone through lots of functional medicine training and functional nutrition training in labs and all that kind of jazz. So I do have some stuff to share. I think this world is so vast that I think sometimes we second guess ourselves like, oh, do I have anything like super important to share? But we have, you know, come to the point where like I have good knowledge to share and I'm happy to share it with you guys. And especially regarding this topic, um, talking about eating disorders and my personal experience. Um, And so, yeah, it's going to be a great episode. Yes. Um, well, why don't you start by, if you don't mind, just kind of sharing your story with us regarding this. Yes, absolutely. So I'm sure you can tell by my voice. I'm pretty young. 
<laughs> I am 26. So my whole like health journey story started when I was 12. So when I was 12, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is autoimmune diabetes. Basically, I went from being like a healthy kid, no issues, never got sick in my life, except maybe allergies. And then when I turned 12, I started losing weight really rapidly. And eventually when I was 12, like six months into being 12, I got rushed to the hospital. I was in DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis. So I had lots of ketones in my blood and in my urine, basically showing that my body couldn't access the food that I was eating for fuel. Because in diabetes, you basically, your body's not able to use the sugar because it can't unlock your cells. That's what you need insulin for. So basically at the age of 12, I became insulin dependent diabetic. So I've had to take injected insulin since I was 12. So my, my health story started a lot earlier than most. And after my diabetes diagnosis, I really kind of went back to normal. I just kept eating the same old food. I had no clue about any of this, <laughs> which is probably good at the time, um, but was just taking my insulin, learning to live with this disease, balancing my blood sugar. It's like a 24-7 job trying to replicate what our pancreas does for us naturally in God's perfect um, creation. So then in terms of after that, so when I turned about 15 or 16, um, I started to have really bad like gut issues and I was extremely fatigued. I had dark circles, all these types of things. And I went to um, a couple of, you know, regular doctors and they basically turned me away, said, whatever, you're fine. <laughs> and eventually I went to a chiropractor and he did lots of supplements, encouraged me to change my diet. And that's why I really started to get introduced to the idea of taking things out of your diet, reducing inflammatory foods. And I thought, okay, like this is it. I, I feel good. And I realized how much power my nutrition had in positively impacting my symptoms. And so I stayed in that like relatively healthy place for, you know, the rest of my high school journey. And I grew up with like a really healthy relationship with food. My parents are awesome. Um, no issues whatsoever there. Um, so that's kind of the beginning part of my story. Um, my eating disorder started um, when I went to college. So essentially what happened is I went to school out of state and I stayed in a dorm that was older. And I basically, upon going up to college, I gained 40 pounds within like three months um, because I wasn't sleeping and I was living in a, a moldy dorm and just was crazy fatigued. All of my symptoms had come right back, even though I was still eating healthy. And I had never had a weight problem before. So I was kind of like, what? <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. So Is it all from the mold? I, I really think a lot of it was. And a lot of it might have been just might have been water weight, too, because my face was really puffy, like my hands and feet were really puffy, um, which can happen with mold stuff, too. But I think a lot of it was mold, um, unfortunately. Um, that was the first time I'd ever had like a really bad mold exposure and that set off, you know, future issues. Um, so yeah, mold, combination of mold. And then I was like really stressed and not sleeping, not prioritizing my sleep. Um, so what I did is I started, you know, restricting food and then exercising after class. So I just was like thinking, okay, I didn't know really about mold. I was like, what does someone do when they have gained 40 pounds that they don't want? Um, <laughs> you start exercising more, you eat better. And so it started out, I feel like, in a very, like, normal, healthy-seeming way. And I was like, I'm so self-controlled. I'm so disciplined. 
da 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 (laughs) thought that I was doing this all the right way and mind you this is before I had done any nutrition training whatsoever Um, so this is all just from what I knew at that time um, from personal experience and after a while of doing that I kind of was hitting a plateau um, after like the first 15 or 20 pounds um, from you know exercising a lot and and restricting my food and so I decided to go on autoimmune paleo or autoimmune protocol of the paleo diet um, which is basically protein and vegetables um, especially if you have diabetes because the only other foods you can have are like sweeteners and like really sweet fruit so I basically just started only eating like protein like chicken and vegetables that was pretty much all I ate um and I didn't really understand how to nourish my body at that time so it started out I feel very innocent and then over time it just became something where I got very tied to the outcome of what I was doing so once I started to see like the numbers on the scale just like kept dropping because I would go to our gym in our college and I would just like every day I would look okay another pound another pound and I was really like it gave me a sense of control and it gave me a sense of like wow I actually I actually fixed this myself but it started to be something where I was dependent on that number being lower for me to have a good day or a bad day um And it just kept feeding into this like obsession um, and addiction with the numbers dropping down. Um, And they really never went up because I wouldn't do anything that would allow them to go up, if that makes sense. I couldn't like stomach the idea of seeing that number be higher than a certain amount, which I'm not even going to validate with an amount because I think everyone's different in this in this area. Um, And so that was a big part of it. The other, you know, the other couple things I started doing that I I feel like just started to border on completely unhealthy is I would, you know, I would only wear workout clothes because the idea of not being able to exercise at like any given moment was panic inducing. Like if I just felt like I needed to exercise, I needed to be able to go like right then because our gym was very close to everything um, at school. And so that was, that was pretty stressful. Like I would be with friends or something and I would just like randomly disappear to go work out (laughs) for the second or third time that day um which was it was pretty bad and over time sorry yeah go ahead um, yeah go ahead um I mean did your friends notice like okay yes she's randomly disappearing while we're hanging out yeah I would just randomly disappear I mean I would say I wasn't really a good friend anyway so they probably wouldn't have they probably weren't like wow where'd she go they just I think they just had an understanding that I was like, there's something off, but I would never like have said it. And they also weren't my friends like from high school on. So they didn't like see the change. Like I had separate friends in college because I went out of state. So they just kind of were like, oh, this is how she is. Mm. Um, And I kind of feel like I just became flaky, but I would like, I would isolate myself because of those reasons. So I didn't want to see anyone like, seeing how much I was working out so I'd like sneak out of my apartment was in the sorority house I would sneak out of like dinners and stuff um just got really like socially isolated um because I was basically just thinking about one thing you know one track mind like if if you care this much about 
the way you look and your weight and your quote-unquote health, you really don't have a lot of space in your life for other people. Um, and as sad as that is, that was that was me for, for a long time. And, you know, at some point, at one point I got to working out like two or more hours a day. I would like at least run miles after every class, basically. If I had two classes, I would like go between classes. Um, couldn't sit still very well. I'd be getting up during lectures um, and like sitting still in a car or traveling of any kind was pretty much like excruciating, like unbearable. And I would like be crying on road trips because it was so distressing to me that I wouldn't be able to move for eight hours driving home or two hours on the plane or whatever. Um, so yeah, it got to be, got to be pretty extreme. And I guess my point in sharing all of this is that you can have the best of intentions when you initially start something, but you have to be vigilant to see, okay, have my motivations changed and what is actually, so what's motivating me now? How do I feel if I don't live up to this behavior or this action that I said I was going to take? Um, like what kind of emotional effects does it have on me? And especially if you're checked in with, with the Lord, do I, do I feel that God approves of my actions? Do I feel like I'm being obedient to him or am I doing this out of like disobedience? Like, am I just saying I'm putting myself and my weight over everything, which is how I was at this point. Um, and I profess to be a Christian because I felt like I was, but you really can't be a Christian in your actions if you're constantly putting yourself over everyone else. Um, my mind was not in a place to really be loving and present, unfortunately. Would you have at that time, though, been um, thinking like, you know, oh, but I am exercising this amazing amount of, of self-control. Like, I don't know if you mm-hmm. asked yourself that question, you know, would God approve of this? Um, is this behavior God would approve of? I mean, how would you have answered that for yourself, though? You know, would you have been like, or would you, yeah. do you know what I mean? I, I mean, I don't think I really associated it with God at that point. Because I grew, I grew up Catholic. I didn't have a, like a very personal relationship with God. I definitely, I believed in God and I understood, but I didn't have like that real like tangible relationship. So I didn't really even think about living my life in a way that honored God besides avoiding sin. Does that make sense? Like yeah, I wanted to totally. avoid like doing wrong things, but I wasn't going to kill like, anybody. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to like avoid the truth and skirt out of events because that's not lying. That's just, you know, and right. you know, I wasn't loving or present, but I also wasn't thinking about being good for God. I was worried about, I didn't want to be bad. Yeah. And I associated eating too much and not exercising with being bad. So it was more so those things, which I don't like the word bad anymore. And I know all of my nutrition clients are like, yep, she will she will um, not be happy if I say the word bad. <laughs> I don't like that word either, but sometimes it's just what everybody understands when you're trying to talk about something like this. I know. Right, right. I know. Exactly. But yeah, I just was so concerned about not do, like not committing a sin, quote mm-hmm. unquote that I wasn't caring about living in line with what the Lord would have asked me to do. And also, you know, something that we talk about a lot and that I'm always talking about is, um, is just that the brain space, the real estate of your brain and Mm -hmm. how much you're, you know, giving that, how much of that is filled with God. Um, and how much is filled with that? I think for us as women, we give a ridiculous amount of brain space to 
diet and food and you know our weight and all of these mm-hmm. things and i think that's something a way to check ourselves on that because um that's not that's not how our brain space should be organized <laughs> right you know? right it, and if you're thinking like looking at a plan and like you and we do feast to fast to me it's completely different because if something gives you more more brain space than you had before that's yes. freeing to me. Yes. Versus exactly. if if Feast of Fast was this thing of like you have to eat out of these containers, like you know that container diet, I forget what yes. it's called, <laughs> like mm-hmm. 21 day fix or something. Um you have to eat like this much fruit. I'm like that's that is not giving you any freedom or independence. It's just, you know, basically making you dependent on other people to tell you what to do versus tuning into your own intuition and what God's asked you to do. Um yeah. So anything that gives you more freedom um, in your in your brain is can be can work for you. So this is not to say like certain plans are always going to contribute to disordered eating behaviors. And we'll kind of talk about what what underscores this, like what causes this kind of behavior, what kind of behavior tendencies and personality tendencies are more likely to have this happen to them. Um, but this is not like plan specific. Like you could do a lot of different plans in a disordered way. Um, but it's really about checking yourself before you wreck yourself, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so tell us, okay, so you were exercising a lot, but it it did progress to more than that, correct? Right. I was exercising a ton, like two or more hours a day, and I got to be severely fearful of pretty much any food that wasn't like the 10 foods that I had deemed like appropriate. (laughs) So I tell this story and it's like really not embarrassing. It's just like, this is wow. So basically I was at Chipotle with my friends in college. I think it was actually a meeting for like one of our clubs. And I panicked because what I thought was my like safe salad with like safe guacamole on it and safe carnitas because it didn't have peppers or anything in it. Um, I like ran to the bathroom to spit out. Like I thought it was a jalapeno that had gotten in my guacamole and it was like literally a piece of red onion, which I was allowed to have. But I literally ran to the bathroom because I was so terrified that if I swallowed this piece of jalapeno, that like all of my work would be undone. Like that to me is like, I was like, wow, I really have crossed a line here. And that was one of my first initial wake up calls to all of this. Was that um, was that because you were doing AIP and you weren't supposed to have mm-hmm. peppers? Okay. I was so scared of nightshades so so scared of them which nightshades are like tomatoes peppers jalapenos a lot of really good tasting things (laughs) uh yeah what did what made you do aip i mean it was it i mean i know you were trying to lose weight but i mean that's more i mean was it because of your diabetes or i mean well because i i knew that i had autoimmune going on like i have type one and i've also been diagnosed with hashimoto's um so i was like "Eh, this probably help Um, and so I, cause I had already had several autoimmune diseases and I had joint pains. I was like, oh no, I'm going to have another autoimmune disease. So it started with like the very rational thought of autoimmune. Mm -hmm. This diet seems to be working for autoimmune people. Bonus, it'll help me lose these 40 pounds I don't want. And then it turned into this massive spiral, unfortunately. Okay. Gotcha. Um, okay. So. So you ran to the bathroom to spit out a little piece of jalapeno. Yes, it's awful. It was actually red onion. So it was like not even jalapeno. I was like, wow, I can't with myself right now. (laughs) Um, But still, even at that point, I didn't even recognize like, oh, I need help with this. I was like, oh, wow, that was dumb. But I mean, I'm glad it wasn't jalapeno. Thank goodness. So 
Um, but yeah, that's, that's what happened to me. And at that point I was just weighing myself obsessively, like several times a day, working out between every class, um, wearing only workout clothes as much as humanly possible, unless I was like forced to wear something else. Um, like if I had to go to chapter or something for my sorority, I'd have to wear something else. And then I'd run home and change to workout clothes again. Um, I would like park in like this very, very far away parking lot just because I wanted to make myself walk like four miles. It's, it was a lot. Um, which I think walking is helpful. I'm not saying walking isn't helpful, but it was right. a combination of all these things together. Right. It's like not we, a great situation. We encourage people, like everybody's like, oh, take the stairs, park, you know, at the back of the parking lot so you get some walk in. But it's all the context of how, of, it's all individual. It's all bio-individual. That's another, you know, right, we always right. say that well, but it, it's it's the context of how everything is going. Um, yeah, and how it makes you feel if you don't do it. Like if I yes. were to park, if my friend was like, oh, there's a spot over here. It's closer. I would park there because I didn't want to appear like a weirdo, but I would be freaking out the whole time. Like, oh, I didn't walk the whole way da, 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 da. in my head, mm. you know, yeah. not out loud because that would, I think everyone would have been like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me girl you got to get your stuff together <laughs> oh my goodness so you you would consider what you um were experiencing as an eating disorder as anorexia or um it's kind of it was kind of a mixed type but it was really a lot of exercise I consider it exercise bulimia because okay. it was like eat a very small amount it was like a combination of anorexia and exercise bulimia because I would eat a very small amount, but then I would still feel like this propensity to like burn off energy like constantly. So to me, it was a combination of those two things and orthorexia. So it falls into like the, it's like Ednos eating disorder, not otherwise specified, but it was, it was bad um, just because it had traits of all three of those different things. Um, but yeah, it, there, there are more clear-cut eating disorders but there are a lot more women that I've found that fall more into like the place I fell into where it's not really one thing it's a combination of a lot of different things a lot of different disordered behaviors Mm -hmm. let's kind of go through what the the more obvious kind of ones we think about or the difference between those and so I see what you're saying so we have these these um, kind of diagnoses of eating disorders, but then there's so many blurry lines that people can cross in between those. Right, exactly. So so really what, what qualifies an eating disorder as such, it's not because it's a certain food plan or a certain amount of working out, because you could be like an Ironman triathlete and be working out three hours a day if you're fueling yourself appropriately and that could be healthy. But really mm-hmm. what, it's, what it's characterized by are severe disturbances in eating behaviors and related thoughts and emotions, uh, preoccupation with food, preoccupation with your body weight and shape. Um, and so there's, you know, three common ones that we know of as like the eating disorders. So anorexia, people with anorexia nervosa. So technically the word anorexia in medical language just means not wanting to eat, not having an appetite. Um, so anorexia nervosa is actually the eating disorder. Um, people with anorexia nervosa see themselves as overweight, even when they're very underweight. So you still think, oh, I still have, I still have pounds to lose. I still need to do more, even though objectively you do not. Um, and people with anorexia nervosa typically weigh themselves repeatedly, severely restrict their food, often exercise excessively as well for the same reasoning. Then we have bulimia nervosa. There's kind of two different subtypes of bulimia. 
So there is just exercise bulimia, which a lot of people aren't really aware of, which you don't purge like vomiting or diuretics or laxatives. You purge with exercise essentially, but people with bulimia have recurrent episodes of eating unusually large amounts of food and feeling lack of control over the episode. So they would say, I'm a binge eater, but then they would compensate with things like vomiting, using laxatives, fasting, that combination of things. Um, And people with bulimia, because of the the quote-unquote binge eating that comes before the bulimia episode, they can be slightly underweight, normal weight, or even overweight um, because they're going through a lot of binge restrict cycles. Mm-hmm. So um, but that's interesting. So you, but you weren't overeating or binging. Nope. Nope. Okay. So it was more like, an, it was more anorexia and exercise bulimia, which is like a very common subtype but when you think of bulimia like the classic bulimia is per- binging and purging mm-hmm. but anorexia is just restricting over exercising that kind of thing okay okay gotcha and then we have people all the time I know Chelsea come to us and say I'm a binge eater I have binge yeah. eating um which is really a disorder so it's not necessarily that easy to say like I'm a binge eater but people with binge eating disorder like lose control over their eating Um, But unlike in bulimia, binge eating disorder, BED, is not followed by purging, excessive exercise, or fasting. So as a result, they're often overweight or obese, and it is by far the most common eating disorder in the United States. Um, So there's kind of some ways you can... You can think about binge eating disorder. It's usually eating for up to two hours continuously, just like continuing to eat like way past the point of satiety um, and either alone or in secret because, of course, there's a, a tremendous amount of shame that comes along with our food and lifestyle choices, especially for those that have binge eating. It's really difficult. I've worked with a lot of people that have had binge eating disorder as well. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people throw that around lightly, uh, not some lightly, some not like, you know, right. but those are, um, I'm glad you kind of outlined those are some kind of clear signs. Um, those three things eating for up to two hours continuously, just way past the point of satiety and fullness, um, or eating alone or in secret. I know that people have come to me and, you know, said it's almost like, they're almost like they're unaware that they're doing it until mm-hmm. it's done. It's like they're sleepwalking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, so that is a thing. I mean, well, well, I guess I we'll talk. Well, maybe talk more about like the brain part of that and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, absolutely. Okay, yeah. we'll keep going. Keep going. And the last one I want to mention because we talked, we covered the three more common ones that we talk about in a, the medical context. There's also there's also also orthorexia. So orthorexia is the new kid on the block in terms of eating disorders, which is more discussed lately because of the prevalence of healing diets. So quote unquote healing diets, diets are in of themselves aren't necessarily healing unless we're partnering with the Lord and it's done in the right spirit. So I will just say that. Um, But it's characterized by obsessive concerns about food, righteousness in eating and fixations on diet standards and food preparation, social impairment. So this is like my example of me at Chipotle. This is, I can't have a jalapeno because it's terrifying to me. Even though there's really no caloric content to a jalapeno, it shouldn't have been that worrisome to me, but it was. Um, And so in addition to orthorexia, there's also a spectrum of disordered eating, 
because you don't just go from normal eating to like bam overnight I have an eating disorder this is diagnosable have to go to treatment all this stuff Um, so there's that spectrum between normal and eating disorder so we talked about this before but the same food choices the same exact behaviors could be disordered for one person and totally normal or healthy for another some people are just more black and white people where they need hard lines to say like I'm not going to do this and that makes them feel best and that is truly being obedient to what the Lord's asked them to do for others they could do better living more in the gray and they can do so healthfully and have a good relationship with food and also be obeying the Lord in that as well yeah I think it's just a matter of um personal yeah the 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 way people approach it there's a lot of black and white people in the world I'm very gray right we just like we like the gray people are like what's the instructions for this I'm like um (laughs) I don't know I'm gonna send you a voice memo I'm not sure um (laughs) um but yeah exactly we we are very we're very gray people so this this is works better for me that's why feast to fast is so great is because it is very much what works for you Um, And it can be customized based off of, you know, the context of your brain and how it's working at that time. Um, I do want to quickly share some warning signs for more disordered behaviors. Um, You know, these are some of the things that I've personally done uh, during my time. Um, But basically things like souping your food. So that's basically mixing food with water to increase the volume of the food. So I would do things like this with like peanut butter, like I would put peanut butter powder in it and I would like put a bunch of water so it would like seem like it was a lot of peanut butter, but it was like a teaspoon of it. Um, You know, cutting your food into really tiny pieces, eating it excessively slowly, um, refusing to eat food that's not pre-portioned because that feels safe because you know exactly what's in it, how many calories, all that kind of stuff. Um, And doing body checking a lot, so constantly looking in mirrors checking things like does my stomach look bigger today how do I look or the opposite avoiding mirrors because that's showing that you may have a sense of body dysmorphia um, where you think that your body is disproportionately larger than it actually is oh my gosh so like the the souping the food cutting into tiny pieces I'm just thinking again like does nobody notice this or I guess you get pretty sly about doing these things you get smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah un- unfortunately. Yeah. That's, I mean, like not, and usually like people that have eating disorders, at least in my experience, I was not trying to eat in front of people very often. I was, you know, trying to not, because I knew that it would look weird. Like I had enough awareness to be like, this is probably, you know, or if I would be in public, I would just kind of like push the food around a lot on my plate, that kind of thing. Unfortunately. What about your family? Well, when I came, when I came home for breaks, they were like, um, (laughs) something's up with you. Um, but this really only set in, this set in pretty quickly. So from the time that I went back for my sophomore year, within like the three months I had dropped like 20 of the, of the pounds and was like getting very, very, very thin looking. Um, and my family did express concern, but I was like telling them I was going to add foods back. I was still kind of operating under the guise of AIP like I'm gonna Mm. add foods back in it'll help me get the weight back da 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 like still just saying what I needed to to I thought that it would it would help but it did not Mm. okay um so why don't we talk about um kind of the 
the neuroscience behind this. Um, I think it's interesting when we're talking about all this, um, that there are things going on in the brain and the body that are affected and that lend toward more of this behavior if things are imbalanced, right? I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. but absolutely, um, yeah. But kind of share more about that because I think this is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our leptin, which we talk about our leptin, high leptin levels, decreasing hunger. Um, so leptin is the put down the fork sister. Is that what you, isn't that what you yep. say? Yes. <laughs> um, so it's a negative feedback loop. So the more leptin we have, the less hunger hormones we have. Um, and oftentimes in anorexia and bulimia, we have decreased leptin. Um, so it was actually interesting because you'd think that your body would be like trying to get you to eat more. Um let me see here. So women with anorexia have had lower, increased leptin. They're hungry, but they're not, not as hungry as they should be. So it really should be way overcompensating. But instead, um, their body actually increased the leptin further than it should be, almost creating a sense of leptin resistance where they're not as hungry as they actually should be given the low body weight that they have. Interesting. And okay. then in binge eating disorder, there's increased leptin. Um, because again, think about that's like the classic, of course, the feedback loop, because your body's like, we're getting way too much food here. Let's increase leptin and p- get you to put the fork down, basically, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't doesn't work as well, because there's all kinds of other neurochemicals that are being triggered um, by binges, including dopamine, um, which is what makes it a reward, a rewarding behavior to continue participating in. But talk a little bit about leptin resistance, because this is a thing we, you know, we hear about insulin resistance, mm-hmm. but leptin resistance. So the put down the fork, sister, stop mm-hmm. eating. That is a hormone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if in leptin resistance, your body is not getting that message. It's not getting the signal. This, the signal is being put out, but the signal is not being received because there could be other neurotransmitters that are interfering. Like, for example, with leptin, um, if their serotonin is really high, Um, which is often happening in anorexia, Um, serotonin actually can be too high, that can suppress appetite. So even though your leptin could be high in a a level or could be lowered trying to get you to eat more, um, the serotonin being high would inhibit that signal from being received. Hmm. Interesting. Because there's other hormones going on, obviously, besides just leptin and ghrelin. I wish it could be that simple. (laughs) Right. Well, But it's just not. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about ghrelin. So ghrelin is our um, hungry hormone, so it's going to increase a hunger. Pick up yeah, the fork, pick up, sister. Pick up the fork, sister. Um, and levels will typically increase before we eat, which makes sense, and drop after because we've eaten. But the relationship with ghrelin and eating disorders is less straightforward than that of leptin. Um, so ghrelin is actually elevated in anorexia because your body perceives that it's starving, of course. Um, but it will drop less after meals than it normally should for people that have bulimia and binge eating. So it's not, doesn't drop as much as it should. So you still will get a brain reward for continuing to eat past your fullness. So even though you've satisfied caloric requirements, your brain is still saying, okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going because there's not enough ghrelin to really turn or there's not, there's too much ghrelin to turn the signal off, if that makes sense. Okay. Got it. Which is very, very frustrating, I'm sure, for many people. (laughs) Yes. I mean, so these hunger hormones, I mean, you can have these dysregulated hunger hormones, obviously, without having an eating disorder. But um, Mm -hmm. all of these things can get um, thrown off um, 
over the years, you know, by a lot of different things, but it's something we have to um, to take into account. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then in terms of, we'll talk about differences in the actual brains of eating disorder prone people. Um, so there are several like personality traits specifically with anorexia, which is what is of particular interest to me because that's most of what I went through. Um, with anorexia, people that have anorexia or history have more of a, a predisposition for worrying, um, pessimism, even just internal pessimism, because I'm sure I looked perfectly happy on the outside, but internally I was very self-critical, um, shyness and low levels of novelty seeking or reduced impulsivity. So basically the opposite of somebody with like um, with ADHD where it increases impulsivity to a certain extent, anorexia is going to make somebody more or this kind of brain type, you're more shy, less likely to take risks and you have a higher interest in what's called harm avoidance. So they associate food, people have anorexia, with harm. So avoiding food is easy because you think that's going to harm me. It's going to increase my weight, um, that kind of thing. Um, there's also a decreased reward sensitivity. There's a study from Harrison et al. in 2010 um, where it also showed an over-response to punishment, like almost like an exaggerated response to having done something bad or being punished or even like verbally criticized. Um, and there have also been some studies that showed unusually high levels of cognitive processing when people with anorexia were looking at pictures of food. Because again, if you're not thinking about food as food, you're thinking about food as numbers and good, bad, ugly, um, it's really going to increase the cognitive workload and of course reduce the brain space you have for actually being a human because your brain is so focused on this one thing. Um, and that's from Cowdery et al. in 2011. So I'll link to all these studies in the show notes as well. Um, and so all that to say, because food is less rewarding and appears to be associated with fear and punishment and all things bad, people with anorexia will tend to place a higher emphasis on the long-term goal of keeping my weight down or weight loss and maintaining these behaviors, even though they're extremely dysfunctional and impair you on a social level, rather than giving into the more immediate rewards of food, which somebody with a more impulsive brain type would be more likely to um, partake in. Aha. Okay. Um, so somebody more with like a, like binging. Yeah. So binging is completely different. Actually, it's very interesting. One thing I'll also mention that is very different between anorexia and bulimia and binge eating for anorexics or those that have had anorexia also tend to report high levels of ascetic behaviors, which is like monk-like. <laughs> like oh. they are very disciplined in every way and perfectionistic and self-denying, if that makes sense. Um, so there's a lot, a lot that goes on there as well. Um, and of course, these are all going to be linked in the show notes versus if you look at bulimia and binge eating, there's not as much, much research on it. I think anorexia is particularly fascinating because it is such a dysfunctional brain pattern and it's not good for long-term survival. So we have to look at why is this happening? Like, obviously, it's not advantageous to the species for somebody to be having those behaviors and those thoughts um, versus bulimia and binge eating are a little bit more understandable for the average person to wrap their head around. Um, but with bulimia and binge eating, they're associated with high levels of impulsivity, emotional dysregulation, and anxiety. Um, 
for bulimia, there's high levels of harm avoidance like we had for anorexia. So even though they're eating and they have emotional dysregulation, impulsivity, anxiety, they have to eat to soothe those things. But the harm avoidance side of their brain is saying, okay, but I have to compensate for this. Versus for binge eating, they don't have the high level of harm avoidance. They have high levels of novelty seeking, which is like the foods that are like in the Rob Wolf book, Wired to Eat, the foods that are immediately rewarding to the palate like oh, this is good. This is setting off all the dopamine centers in my brain. This is like, this increases my pleasure basically through novelty seeking. Okay. That makes sense. And then for all three different types, there's, there can be a history of childhood trauma or abuse, neglect, bullying, emotional or physical neglect and PTSD. This is definitely not present for everyone, not present for me, but it is due to the dissociation tendency, like what you talked about when you said your clients or anyone you've talked to has said, it feels like I don't even know like what I'm doing, like something just takes over my body. Um, Because eating disorder behaviors take the sufferer away from uncomfortable feelings or behaviors like I'm not enough, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm a fake, I'm a failure, all of those bad negative thoughts and really allows them to exert control over their life or environment when previously in situations they may have learned that I don't have any control. So this can be a way for someone to exert control when they feel powerless um, and and really just at their wits end. Mm, so they would use um, they would use binging in that way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes, exactly. Okay. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing lately is working on. Um, like I've talked to a lot of clients about this limbic system retraining and really basically teaching the brain like I am safe. And you can do this with a Christian practitioner, um, limbic system retraining, nervous system retraining, basically repatterning the brain to get out of a trauma response. Um, even if the traumatic event for you was your eating disorder or past disordered eating or I don't know, so if you're really sensitive to something someone said to you in fifth grade, you just never know what could have affected you on a subconscious level too. Mm-hmm. What is just give us a little peek into what does that look like? Oh, a n- nervous system retraining. Uh huh. Basically, about- there's different types. There's like dynamic neural retraining system, and then um, I'm actually starting to work with a practitioner. Her name is Madeline Lowry, and she practices what's called the MAP method. Um, basically, it's DNRS. DNRS you do daily, um, and it's essentially almost like affirmations, but you create basically you create like affirmations, positive thoughts, you're repatterning the brain, um, you know, kind of similar to like self-coaching Christians or stuff, stuff that you do, Chelsea, but in like a more structured, like daily practice mm-hmm. um, in an effort to get the brain out of its survival state versus a MAP practitioner can do this in per session. So you say, for this session, I'm going to work through my past eating disorder issues. For next session, I'm going to work through this belief I have about myself and that kind of thing. Um, so you pick a, a focus for each session in that way, or you can do DNRS yourself and that's like a daily practice. Wow, that's really, that's fascinating. It is, it's really interesting. And again, this is just showing us like God has created our bodies and our brains so beautifully. Like we have the ability to really partner with him in healing of of our bodies through repatterning our thoughts and our our trauma as well because there are things that you don't even realize that are still affecting you to this day because we're we're humans we're sensitive people <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's good to be or cultivate awareness of things that may have contributed to things that are happening for you now regardless of whether it's disordered eating or something else right and to work toward 
um, reforming new neural neural pathways that mm-hmm. um, kind of break those old um, those old connections. I mean, yeah, this is we could go deep deep work here, but I'm glad <laughs> that you exposed us to those um, yeah to those methods. Okay. I'll report back. I'll report back after I complete my my track. Um, but yes, because I even though I know that I'm physically healed of these things and I believe that I am mentally as well I still know that there's always more behind the scenes than I may even be aware of so I try to do the work on all levels um in terms of body image there's some interesting characteristics with body image that are associated with eating disorder prone peeps um increased levels of body dysmorphia for one where you think your body is much larger than it actually is Um, And so a really cool study that was done in 2004, Baylor et al. um, actually wrote um, neuroimaging study of women recovered from anorexia, which with the binge purge subtype, which is like a combination of anorexia and bulimia. Um, They found there was a higher serotonin receptor activity in the left parietal cortex associated with lower drive for thinness. So higher serotonin receptor activity associated with lower drive for thinness. Um, versus a separate study um, also found abnormal activation of the parietal cortex, so part of the brain when individuals with anorexia looked at pictures of themselves. Um, again, abnormal activation because you're turning something that should be a positive, like a picture of yourself, into a bunch of numbers and self-criticism. Um, and it's interesting because the parietal cortex actually helps us to create a map of the body using sensory inputs. And so researchers have actually hypothesized that problems with creating this body map, if I'm not aware of how large or small I am, um, and I my brain doesn't work properly to actually map my space, like map how much space I take up, um, you won't really have an accurate perception of how large or small you are. And that problem with creating the body map may at least in part underlie some of these distortions we see in eating disorders. Um, so it was very interesting. There's another study from Moore et al. in 2010 that talked about how patients that were currently ill with anorexia that had active eating disorder had problems retrieving accurate information about their body shape, and they always overestimated their body size. That is so fascinating because, you know, somebody on the outside is, you know, regarding somebody with um, mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, just so unhealthily thin and you're like how can you not see this you yes. know it's, mm-hmm. I think that's the everybody questions like how can you not see that I mean it's but this is what you're speaking to right here mm-hmm. absolutely yeah you just literally do not are not aware <laughs> yeah because all you think about is numbers you're not see, you're not seeing like physically how emaciated you look you just see numbers going down and number go down make me happy kind of like caveman logic um, but that's that's literally the, the pattern that a lot of our brains get stuck in. Um, so neurotransmitter levels. Let's talk about neurotransmitters themselves because we know we talk about serotonin, dopamine. I've mentioned them all a couple times, but I'll try to go through, through these guys. Um, so serotonin is a neurotransmitter brain hormone, basically is what a neurotransmitter is, that acts to mitigate the effects of stress. Um, So in the same way, we don't want too low of serotonin because we need that to buffer our stress. We also don't want them to be too high. Um, If they're too high, it can also demonstrate we're under too substantial of a stress load. Example, anorexia, (laughs) physical, mental, or emotional stress. It could be any of the three. Um, And so there's an article published in 2009 in Nature Neuroscience, a journal. There's an eating disorder researcher named Walter Kay, who's one of the leading researchers in this area. And he actually hypothesized that 
starvation or denying yourself of food actually made people with anorexia feel better because it decreased the serotonin in their brains. Um, But as they continue to starve themselves, the brain will respond by increasing the number of serotonin receptors to more efficiently utilize the remaining serotonin or ration it, basically. So to keep feeling better, the person needs to starve themselves further, which creates that vicious cycle. Um, Because the body has then upregulated the receptor activity, um, basically the body's like trying to make the serotonin more available and you have to keep starving yourself more and more to get the same mental result basically Mm. god that's so fascinating i know isn't it crazy because we think serotonin good but (laughs) it's not it's not that simple and the interesting thing is that when somebody with anorexia starts eating again their serotonin levels will spike like crazy um which causes extreme anxiety and emotional chaos so that's why a lot of times people with anorexia have to recover like with assistance they have to go to a place and get and like get help and have someone with them and watching them eat and make sure making sure they're eat they're eating um because of that because they get really emotional anxious because their serotonin is spiked because they've been depriving themselves of food for so long that then essentially it will then spike the serotonin in their brain so so much because their their serotonin has been down regulated wow i mean this I just keep saying the same thing is so fascinating but I mean you know with you because you know as somebody I mean I have mm-hmm. not experienced anything like this but when you see somebody um, or you know somebody that has an eating disorder you're like okay something's wrong something's not working mm-hmm. in their brain they see themselves as you know overweight they're not I mean what is going on these are the things going on I think this is just so interesting mm-hmm. yeah if there's anything I can like share with people it's like this is there's no stigma to this because yeah. this is literally just happening. Like this, you're right. not you're not creating this. It's just it's it just exists. And I think the more we understand about it, the better we can all understand it and be able to help others that we know of too. You know. Yes, and have more compassion. You know, mm-hmm. I think people can yep. get kind of like, I mean, come on, just eat something, or you know, and, right. and not really thinking like there is a whole mess of neurotransmitters and hormones and things that have mm-hmm. become totally out of whack that need to be um, rebalanced and yes, um, brought back into a homeostatic situation. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The same thing is true of dopamine. Like dopamine we know is our pleasure chemical. So it invo- it's involved in reward motivated behavior like I need to study because I want to get good grades. I'm going to go to work early so I get a raise at some point or so I get, you know, praised or whatever. And it also helps regulate our movement, our memory, hormones, pregnancy, sensory processing, all these things. Um, And with anorexia, the leading hypothesis is that this is associated with overproduction of dopamine. So, of course, you know that you need like a good level of alertness. You don't want to be like, you know, the walking dead. You also don't want to be like extremely anxious. Um, With anorexia, it's almost like creates like a nervous tension with anxiety, harm avoidance, hyperactivity. And when your dopamine is super high, like you already have enough quote unquote pleasure hormone. You don't need pleasurable things like food to be your crutch, if that makes sense. So it really just kind of further exacerbates the existing condition. Okay, I see. Wow. Mm-hmm, exactly. And then it's interesting with bulimia and binging, it's different. Um, so bulimia is associated with lower levels of dopamine and less receptors as well. And of course, that's why, because you are driven to binge because it's going to give you some dopamine. 
and mm-hmm. help fill up those receptors. And your brain's going to be like, woohoo. Um, and binge eating also is associated with dopamine release. Um, binge eating disorder also has been linked to hyper responsiveness to rewards like food because, again, the dopamine's low. If something's low and then you do something that makes the dopamine high, your brain is building in, uh, oh, this is a good thing. This is helping me. This helps me feel better. Um, all that kind of stuff. And interestingly enough, dopamine being low is also a, a significant feature of depression. So that's another comorbidity that can be involved with bulimia, binging, depression can all be somewhat related. Um, even though it could be, you could also have depression and anorexia as well. There's more of a clear cut connection between bulimia, binging um, with low dopamine state, state and depression as well. Mm, okay. That, yeah, that makes sense. Wow. I mean, that's okay. It's a lot. I'm letting it all soak in. It's a lot. <laughs> She's soaking it in, y'all. I'm soaking um, it in. I'm just like, my brain's like, like sparking. Okay. As isn't I'm it processing. cool? Isn't it yeah, cool? Very. I know. It's, it's like, you know, it's really interesting for me to look at all this and knowing all that I know now and thinking about poor little baby Carly did not even understand what she was doing, but I do know and I'm using it for good now. Um, So let's talk about the science of hunger and starvation. So I want to bring up what's called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. So when I first was recovering, I looked into this and I was truly shocked at what I found. Um, Essentially, during World War II, I don't think this is like a very ethical study, so probably will not be repeated. (laughs) Um, We had 36 men voluntarily starve themselves so that researchers could learn about how to help people recover from starvation, whether it was induced by war or whatever. And the results of this study have been implicated for eating disorders as well. So essentially what's gone on here, um, Ansel Keys, our fave, just kidding. Yeah. Remember <laughs> we had the same, yes, we had the same convo about him with our his cholesterol loveliness. <laughs> yes, and the um the Pufa podcast that I did. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the he's kind of the bad guy that instigated all of the um, industrial oil situation, low fat, all that stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. so if that name is familiar to you, that is why. You know but why. <laughs> is it? But isn't, I want to say, isn't this the Minnesota starvation experiment? Isn't this one of the, I mean, it's a horrible yes. concept, but it's one of the better things. That it's one are, of the better things that has been contributed to science because it showed us so, so, so much. Yeah. Um, he did. Yeah. So, so we'll, 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 we'll keep him just for this one alone. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, we also had Dr. Brozek. He's the psychologist and Ansel Keys was the physiologist. So he is the like the PhD researcher in physiology. So the physical side of it versus the psychologist was responsible for the psychological data. So Ansel Keys kind of set up the experiment versus Brozick was looking at more of the effects on their psychological health and Keys was looking more at the effects on their physical health. Um, so basically what they did, it was a civilian pub- public service. So they, ha- they were kind of already volunteering to be helping with the war efforts. Um, They were conscientious objectors to the war, basically. So that was their alternative to combat service. So they became basically human guinea pigs, unfortunately. Um, But they would be willing to do something like this. So for this, the unfortunate thing is that they were guys. So we can only extrapolate so much to women because we know women are so different. Um, So subjects had to be male and single and demonstrate good physical and mental health. Um, They had to show an ability to get along with others under trying circumstances so there weren't any fights, lol. And interested in relief works, they would understand, they would have a compassionate understanding of why do we care about doing this. 
Um, so 36 men were selected from 200 volunteers. Basically, the protocol starved them to the point where they lost 25% of their normal body weight. They spent the first three months of the study eating 3,200 calories a day, a pretty normal diet for guys at that time, followed by six months of semi-starvation at 1,500 calories a day or so, divided between breakfast and lunch. Then, a restricted rehab period of three months eating 2,000 to 3,200 calories a day, so bringing them, you know, two-thirds of the way back up. And then finally, an eight-week unrestricted period. So it was like basic diet, like potatoes, bread, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't like the most nutrient-dense diet either, which probably didn't help. Um, They also had to work 15 hours a week in the lab, walk 22 miles a week, and work for 25 hours a week basically for with their brains so they were working substantially while being starved as well so during the semi-starvation phase where they dropped their calories by 50 percent to 1500 calories for a guy that is very very little um so beyond the gaunt appearance of the men they significantly do decrease their strength stamina body temperature heart rate and sex drive Um, The psychological effects were significant. They became obsessed with food. They would dream and fantasize about food, read and talk about it. They would like be so happy with the two meals a day they were given. They would like lick the bowls. Um, They also reported fatigue, irritability, depression, and apathy. And they also reported decreases in mental ability, although when they actually tested their, their cognition, they didn't find any, you know, impairment in mental ability. Um, and so a, three of them actually had to leave because they didn't break the diet. Like they, they just were felt awful. Um, and then a fourth didn't actually, wasn't actually able to lose 50% or 25% of the body weight. So essentially it was very, very interesting experiment. And they did high caloric intake to get them to regain weight. And they also talked about how as they regained the weight, um, slowly all of those functions kind of came back online. It was slow, but it increased in increments. And it also really showed that you need to do this in a slow, like steady manner. Um, If they were to go from 1,500 to 3,200 overnight, um, they would have felt very poorly as well. So yeah, it just talks um, a lot about the psychology of hunger and regardless of the reason for starvation, um, we still have those, those negative psychological attentive effects, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. <clears throat> I need to go and read more about that, but thank you for giving us the high points there. Or of course. Low, point, low points, maybe. <laughs> yeah, low points of weight. High points of the study, for sure. Um, so speaking of high and low points, um, let's talk about body weight set point. So as the men regained weight, of course, it brings to mind like, okay, your body weight set point can change. Um, so why does our body weight set point, sometimes when we recover from eating disorder, I certainly experienced this, my body weight set point um, became higher than it was prior because... Um, The more we decrease our caloric intake, our body will actually compensate by creating a chronic sympathetic fight or flight state where we think we're in trouble all the time, um, which reduces what our body is burning, um, like calorie-wise, because it thinks I'm not safe. I get a signal I'm not safe. I have to conserve. I have to store up energy, so it's going to burn way less than it should. And as you increase calories, it takes a while for your metabolism to catch back on to oh, we're eating again. Like, okay, I can learn how to reburn this. But when you're in this state of starvation or restricting yourself, your body is going to take anything that it can get and latch onto it. And like, I'm not letting this go because I don't know when I'm going to be starved again. Um, And so as we recover from this, 
our body is really resilient. It can bounce back, but you can overshoot your set point before it gets better and it comes back down to your normal weight. Again, your body just went through what it perceived to be starvation and stress um, for months into years. And so you just want to get out of a state of nutritional stress. So eating plenty of foods, combination of carbs, proteins, and fats. Um, And there's tons of information about um, hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery, which is basically when you lose your period from under eating and over exercising, which I experienced for, I think I lost my period for four years um, and didn't have a period, had like postmenopausal hormone levels, good times. Um, And so that's a big part of hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery, whether it's associated with an eating disorder or not. Um, is getting out of a state of nutritional stress, um, not exercising as much, exercising to your tolerance, getting plenty of rest, basically teaching the body I'm safe and I'm going to be nourished. Also, I mean, this is just, you know, so applicable as well to these, you know, going just too low calorie, even if we're not Mm -hmm. maybe wading into full on eating disorder land, um, why a a, you know, low, too low calorie for too low, for too long can throw off your body weight set point. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and why that is not, I, I know I'd like to do a podcast sometime, um, between, um, talking about the difference between, you know, low calorie versus like fasting, because there's just all this yeah. good, good information around it. But, you know, fasting does not regular fasting, intermittent fasting doesn't put your body in that stress state as does chronic low calorie eating right Right. to where your body's like wait a minute like there this there's obviously a crisis in the world there's not enough calories coming in for all this long time so we better conserve energy you Mm -hmm. know um slow down the metabolism and then you come back around later and you have a harder time budging that body weight set point because your body is like moving moving the target for it's thinking future like oh my gosh this is what has happened so right we want to we want to hang we want to give ourselves some room here so you know we're going to try to stay at this weight as much as we can all that I mean it's just I think that's really um something that goes along with this as well just a point I want yeah to throw out there. regardless just like the Minnesota starvation experiment showed those men willingly said I am eating less <laughs> I agreed to be starved, basically. And they still had psychological effects. So even if it's something that you're doing consciously and it's not impaired by all these disordered eating behaviors and thoughts, it still can happen. So being careful not to undershoot your calories too, too much is critical, even just in general for general health. Um, I will just say a, pre, a brief little blurb about the Nita helpline. If you or somebody that you know has a true eating disorder, please call the number. It's 1-800-931-2237. And they're open, I think, most days, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. So please feel free to reach out to them if you are really struggling with this and get help. Thank you. Yeah, that's thank you for that. So um, is that all you want to say mostly about all that? Because I I did want to ask you kind of come back to your story and like, what did you do and how did you overcome it? And And Mm -hmm. so tell us, kind of wrap it up with that for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's, there's so many things that I did. I honestly, I feel like it's a blur, (laughs) Um, but a large part of it was my testimony that I basically, I, not that I dropped out of school, but sounds like I didn't drop out of school. I took a gap year from school because I, I noticed that the environment that I was in was enabling me to be this way because I didn't have like my parents nearby to like watch over me and that kind of thing. So I came home. 
um, I really reconnected to the Lord and began to develop a personal relationship with him. I learned more about nutrition. I learned why I needed to support my body. I surrounded myself with positive people. I disconnected from social media for over a year. Um, I didn't log into anything. I went to counseling and I just started eating. I decided this is what I want. This is what I need to do. Um, and with the help of, of course, counseling and all those things, I was able to do that. Um, and hardest thing I've ever done <laughs> so far in my life. Um, maybe NP school will take the cake on that. Um, but it was very, very difficult. Um, and the internal battle that I felt with myself when I was gaining the weight back was very difficult to, I will be honest, I really had a hard time. Um, but I learned to buy clothes that I felt comfortable in and, I realized that I am much better. I'm a much better version of myself. Um, even if I'm not like the, even if I'm not at like the perfect weight that I think I should be, I am like a million times better of a human and a better Christian and a better follower of Christ because of my recovery and everything I've been through. Um, and the fact that I'm now able to put others before myself, um, is not something I was able to do. So I've learned, I've learned to cope with you know, my body weight set point increasing and learning to balance, like still wanting to be healthy. I didn't throw the towel in completely and I still exercise. I still do all the same things. I just do them with a different mindset. Um, and I can like indulge now with mental peace. Like I went with, out to dinner with my mom like a couple months ago and I actually ate French fries and I was like shocked. I was like, who is this girl? <laughs> and it's still like, it still like pinched me. I'm like, thank you Lord for bringing me through this and um, just giving me so much um, hope and joy for the future. And that's just what I want to share in terms of that's how I, that's how I got through it. It definitely wasn't easy. Um, but I was able to, I was able to recover with the help of amazing, wonderful people. Praise God. Mm -hmm. When, when did you go through NTA and what, mm -hmm. like, where does that fit in the timeline? So I actually went through NTA when I was recovering. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I was like, okay, as I learned like, oh, food can actually help me. Oh, interesting. Oh, weird. Like this thing is good. Like there's not only bad food and like neutral food that like actually can heal me. I was like, did not understand. So I decided to go through NTA because I wanted to understand why food was supportive and it really got me out of my fear-based mentality um and I it's just really interesting to me how I went through that and it did not contribute to my fear around food whatsoever if anything it gave me freedom to know that like our bodies were designed to be able to eat a wide variety of foods and that's a marker of resilience and uh metabolic flexibility if our body is able to tolerate the widest variety of foods possible and that we shouldn't fear it it's something that is helpful to us Oh, amen. So that was kind of like part of your recovery. Mm-hmm. It was. I spent, I think I'm trying to remember exactly when, but I think I spent the first like three to four months of my, of time just recovering. Then I started NTA. Um, then a year passed, I started going to nursing school and that's how that all worked. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, as we kind of wind on here, <clears throat> I mean, what would be your, just kind of a quick recap, just to help everybody, I don't know, just kind of reflect and how to know if we're making healthy choices or making choices from a mm -hmm. healthy place. You know, what, Yeah. just some takeaways as we get wrap up here. Yeah. I say, I say there's a couple things to examine, um, your methods. So 
I have learned from there's an author, Gretchen Rubin, who she says, pay careful attention to anything you want to hide. So are your actions something that you're proud of or something that you feel like you need to hide? Um, Because that will be able to tell you these actions are healthy or unhealthy. Um, Regardless of whether you should, you know, maybe you are overeating cookies at night when everyone's asleep, you're trying to hide that or you're trying to hide your restriction. So are those are those actions something that you're proud of taking or is it something that you're trying to hide and ashamed of? Because shame is a way of of the Lord kind of Holy Spirit tugging on us and being like, I don't know if this is healthy. Um, so pay attention to that. Um, the next would be motivations. So are we rooted in the pursuit of thinness or a pursuit of a certain body type or because of shame or because of guilt? Or are your motivations for why you're doing what you're doing rooted in a genuine desire to be healthy? Like a genuine desire, not like I want to be healthy, but on the inside you're like, actually, it's just because I want to lose weight. Um, also your thoughts surrounding slip ups or failures. So do you, if you're, if you fail, quote unquote, do you put a complete stop to healthy behaviors? Do you have all these negative thoughts? Like I can't break this chain or I'll never get back to this place. I can't take a break today. Um, or do you have a healthy mindset, like flexibility in your mind? Can you get back up and try again tomorrow? Are you beating yourself up too much for things that you're slipping up on? And finally, in terms of your personal relationships, this is something I really noticed about myself. Like, are you flexible and filled with grace when things don't go your way? Or are you just like irritable, rigid, controlling, just plain mean when you can't work out or eat your perfectly healthy food? <laughs> I think that's a big, that's a big thing we all need to take into account. Like, is this something that makes me a better person? Or is this something that takes me way to the other extreme of putting this above any other people in my life? Um, so above all, just remembering like, Food isn't just fuel, as many Instagram posts will say that, that just make me want to write a a billion spam comments. Um, (laughs) Food is not just fuel. Food is an emotional experience as well. It connects us to the present moment, to our life experiences, to our loved ones. Um, And not ever emotionally eating, quote unquote, is not a goal that many of us can healthfully achieve. Instead, choose times mindfully and don't allow yourself to feel guilt or shame surrounding food. Make your choice. Move on. The next day is a different day. Um, And always take into account that your body is a holy temple. Are your actions honoring to God? Are they honoring to yourself? Are you trying to hate yourself into a healthier body? Or are you being loving, kind, and honoring and expecting that your body will follow? Um, so those are, those are the thoughts that come to mind when you, when you ask like how to know if you're making choices from a healthy place. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. I think those are great. Is there anything else you want to share? Um, I'm going to ask you the anchor questions today. I think I did forgot to do that last time. So before sure. we do that, is there yeah. anything else, anything last things you want to say before we do that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to share some body image resources um, in the show notes. There's a couple books, Body Kindness by Re- Rebecca Scritchfield. Breaking Free from Body Shame is from Jess Connolly. Um, there's a couple podcasts and YouTube videos. Um, and in my work with clients, I work with a lot of ladies that struggle with disordered eating that have recovered from eating disorders um, with professional help and all that stuff. But I really shy away from restrictive diets. And I think as time goes on, we learn more and more about the negative impacts of that. So um, we will continue to share the more we know with you guys. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared with us, uh, shared with us today. I, I didn't know your full story, you know, until, well, until now, until you've shared everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so grateful. I know it's, it's brave to come on and, and share that um, and just use this experience um, 
you know, for the betterment of, um, of for you and for all the people listening. So I, I thank you so much. Of course. For that. Okay. How about um, what you eating these days? What's an anchor meal for you? So I'm like in a basic mood with food, which is like, again, this is so, I'm like so normal with food now. I'm like, oh yeah, food? Got to do that. Um, Grass-fed ground beef. I'm like sauteing it in a pan with garlic powder, salt, and an onion in the skillet with extra virgin olive oil or ghee, and then doing like roasted Brussels sprouts that I like finally found the right temperature for. So I'm happy. <laughs> What's and the temperature? Is it magic? It's <laughs> three, 375 for 30 minutes, 25 to 30 minutes. You have to check them, but Okay. I don't know if it was just a fluke, but I'm just like praying it wasn't a fluke that I finally found the perfect temperature. Um, so that's fun. That's my anchor meal. <laughs> well, that's delicious. So you mean like, so the Brussels sprouts aren't too charred and they're cooked through? No, they're, they're like not... caramelized, but they're mm-hmm. cooked and they have like the little Yum. brown spots on them, which probably contribute to some kind of problem, but I don't care. Again, food freedom, peace sign. Nobody can see it. Um <laughs> That's funny. Okay, that's yummy. I love that too. Um, ground beef, grass-fed ground beef is just the easiest go-to ever. I love so it. easy. Love it. Um, how about a verse? What about an anchor verse? For sure. Okay, so I'll share a, a little bit. So my um, recently at church, we had to share. We share like you know, it depends on the person, but every time we have a church service, we one of us will share a core value of our church. Um, And the core value that I shared was people are our heart. And I just had this thought coming to me in quiet time with the Lord where how God can really use our weaknesses and what we perceive as our flaws for good. So, of course, in my devotional, there was something about um, because it's I think it's for worship leaders. It was something about how people actually rated songs that had auto tune in them as less good than things that were more imperfect and raw um, because we're human and we want to see humanity in others. So if everyone's never sharing what's actually going on behind closed doors and they just seem to be this perfect person, we kind of paint this picture on them like they're not really relatable to me. And it really can keep us from becoming close with others and building community and friendships because you're just thinking, oh, that person's perfect. They don't have any problems. But by sharing and being open about the things that we've struggled with and gone through and just being a real human being and and saying like, actually, I'm struggling with this or, oh yeah, I, I forgot to do that. I'm so sorry. And just owning up to the ways that we fall short and leaning into the Lord and how he He can make up for all of our weaknesses and more if we're going to partner with him. I think there's something really special to that. So not so much as a verse, um, although we talked about Isaiah 61 (laughs) about beauty from ashes. But I really think that if we if we're able to actually embrace the things that aren't perfect about ourselves and we say, Lord, I know that I'm not enough, but with your help, I can I can really help do your work on this earth um, can be really can be really special and valuable. Amen to that. And speaking of doing the work, um, you work with one-on-one clients. Where can people? I mean, you've got <laughs> that was a good. Load that was good, them. girl. <laughs> you like that? You like that segue? That was a good segue. Um, although I know your your calendar is pretty full, but um, if yes, if you can, if you have room there. for more clients, where would they find you? Yes, I may be closing the registration for new clients very soon, but my website is wholehearted. W-H-O-L-E hearted, H-E-A-R-T-E-D dot care. Um, and all the information is listed there. But feel free to email me if you need anything, peeps. Yes, please do. 
Um, okay. Well, thank you everybody so much for listening. Um, and thank you again, Carly, for sharing this. So, so valuable. And, um, yeah, hearing your story is, is just, I, now I know you on a whole new level too. And one day we're going to meet and, and I'm going to squeeze you even harder. Yes. So, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We All believe. right. My, we believe. Thank you friends so much for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week and I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.